Family offices can be incredibly valuable investors and they provide the long-term capital. It's a unique space and one that is very interesting to our issuers who are always looking for capital and looking to diversify their shareholder base. Senior management should leave the relationship building efforts, but for the most part, access to an IRO will suffice for updates and maintenance. Welcome to the Exchange Feed podcast. I am your host, Omar Kafagi, a manager of corporate access. And in this episode, we'll discuss the global family offices landscape, uncover unknowns related to this investor audience, and share best practices on how our listed issuers can target this alternative pool of capital. Today, I have with me Dr. Michael J. Oliver, co-founder of Global Partnership Family Offices. Welcome, Dr. Michael. Thank you very much indeed, Omar. It's nice to be here. So to try and set the stage and maybe share some context with our listeners, let's start with what is GPFO and maybe ask you to give a bit of an overview on the global family offices landscape. Sure. Global Partnership Family Offices, GPFO, was founded back in 2009. And for family offices around the world, GPFO is the membership organization I think they can trust most to make them feel connected to the global family office community. And it provides access to the best resources to help them adapt and thrive. So we're leading experts thanks to a tightly connected network, the knowledge of best practices. We've got a very highly curated approach and a global perspective. And, and I think everything we do basically sits aside three pillars, if I may. The first pillar is best practice and thought leadership. So we provide insights from an access to key opinion leaders, legislators and market movers at appropriate times. And then investment themes. That's our second pillar. So we screen different investment opportunities and investment products from across asset classes and geographies, both from large institutions and asset managers to up and coming fund managers, both direct and co-investment opportunities. And finally, the third pillar for us is research and advocacy. So we conduct research for the benefit of the wider family office community and sometimes on behalf of institutions seeking to understand certain research themes. Our most recent report this month, for example, was a finger on the pulse of how family offices are investing in private markets. And advocacy efforts include training for institutions on the nuances to servicing the family office market as well as supporting causes that are integral to the family office community. And you asked about the family office landscape. Well, that's evolved quite dramatically over the last 15 years we've been in business. There's a quite a large rise, as you probably know, in new wealth, leading to a proliferation of many family offices. And the world has changed for already established family offices too. Both the macro and those geopolitical landscapes mean that family offices become more global and are forced to become more global in their reach. In terms of the size, well, you know, reports sometimes estimate there are 7,000 plus family offices worldwide. And that, I think, has grown. That number has grown by more than 50 percent over the last five years alone. And our focus is primarily on single family offices and private multifamily offices. Commercial multifamily offices are wealth managers often incentivized to grow their clients and AUM as much as delivering exceptional service and performance. And then people often ask me, Omar, what asset base justifies having a family office? Well, 
That's open to debate, very much so. There has been a rise in private MFOs and virtual FOs. A virtual FO, rather than establishing a large team in-house, often relying on advisors, instead what you do in a VFO is pick and choose service providers who offer those different services. And both of these do require smaller individual asset bases to justify the costs. The recent UBS Global Family Office report states that a family office costs on average between about 58 basis points and 32 basis points of total AUM to run. And that, of course, depends on asset base size. And there's some good data around allocation these days on the average family offices. Um, effectively, the 60-40 traditional asset classes, you know, your equities and your fixed income versus the alternate asset classes. And these can be very alternate, not just private equity, real estate, hedge funds, but fine wine, stamp collecting, postcard collecting, fine cars. Now, Michael, unlike institutional investors where you can dig into some data around their past and current holdings and really um, get to shape up what their investment style is, um, there isn't a lot of similar public information that's available on the family offices. So um, my question is, from your experience, what does their investment style typically look like? Well, they all have very different styles, but I think the key thing is that they all make their own rules. So some favor passive endowment styles, and then there are others who are much more opportunistic. So I think the key thing to stress is that they do tend towards a long-term long horizon. These guys are not short-term thinkers. So the older, in generational terms, if you think about it, the third, the fourth, the fifth generation, they can be a lot more professionalized. And because of that, they're likely to be more diversified and less opportunistic. They're allocators, if you think about it, rather than those deal doers. Now, some family offices still have operating businesses behind them. You see this particularly in the Middle East and Far East. I think it's fair to say, though, the younger the family office, generally, the more they are attached to their own sphere of expertise for investment assets. And as the family office grows older, this will change. And one thing that's not particularly well understood in my experience is that these family offices want private client levels of service. They want that intimacy, that attention to detail, but they want to pay institutional pricing for products and services. They're very price conscious. Their fees compound, if you think about it, over the long term, if you've been around for your second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth generation. Their investment universe is often less restricted compared to institutions. And more mature family offices, which are in their fourth and fifth generation, clearly see themselves as custodians of wealth. They're keeping that wealth safe for the next generation. And there's a forever evolving debate in the family office world over two key concepts, capital preservation versus capital growth. I think it's fair to say that very few family offices have an active trader mindset. For the most part, they do not run their equity portfolios like a hedge fund, which leads to often long-term hold periods. So in other words, that makes them great capital partners for management teams. So Dr. Michael, do, do some of the families that you work closely with look at the Canadian equities market um, when trying to, to scan for investment opportunities? and? Maybe I'll ask you as well, are there any sort of parameters around market cap when they look at some of those opportunities? 
Well, Canada has a very strong history of entrepreneurial families, Omar, and that attracts, I think, family offices. It's a jurisdiction, of course, which is friendly towards international wealth. Now, it's often seen as the little brother to the exchanges over the border by those larger institutions, but some family offices see this as an opportunity and seize upon it. Now, from my issuer interactions, um, there tends to be a common belief that family offices only enter a position when there's a financing taking place. Um, is that correct, Tessio? Well, for the most part, I would say family office investment is more conviction based than opportunistic. I sort of touched on that a little bit above. But family offices will often take or start a position in the market. But because they've got that significant firepower, if there are financing opportunities which appeal, they'll get stuck in. Okay. Um, and, you know, for those who don't know, we, we do a lot of work with your group uh, by organizing investor events where a number of our issuers get to present to a room full of family offices from your network. Um, one of the most common questions that I get from issuers around family offices is, what is the best engagement strategy to get in front of this pool of capital? Yes, and we thank you very much for all your engagement over the last couple of years. We've enjoyed working with you. And as I've stressed both to you and to others, trying to engage with family offices only when you're seeking to close a fund, um, it really does dramatically lower the chance of success. Many family offices enjoy, in fact, require relationship building and they're driven by building relationships over a long period of time. And many issuers fail to understand this. And there's a big difference, I think, between private client engagement and mass marketing. So issuers who put themselves into the shoes of a family office, who realize that the family office is more than just a capital provider, well, they can be an important value add to shareholders. And those that do so are much more successful. I stressed earlier that the family office wealth is patient capital. It takes time to understand a family's investment philosophy, and that's got to be done through face-to-face -face conversations over a period of time. And not just these formal meetings either. A cup of tea, a cup of coffee, a glass of wine, you know, the very, very social animals as well as professional investors. It's very interesting how you emphasize this relationship building exercise with families. Um, how often do they want to hear from the companies? Um, is it similar to institutional investors that, that typically want to hear from companies, you know, on monthly basis or quarterly basis? Um, how, how often do they want to hear from the companies? You're right. It's about building relationships, understanding what each individual wants and needs to see. And of course, they're all different. Every family office is different. They don't want to be bombarded with emails, constant emails, phone calls. Quarterly updates are welcome. When you've got a new piece of news, let them know. They often want access to senior management. Senior management should lead the relationship building efforts. But for the most part, access to an IRO will suffice for updates and maintenance. Very interesting. Now, in comparing the family offices group to um, institutional investors, um, you know, what would you say is the biggest difference uh, between those two groups in terms of assessing investment opportunities? I sort of mentioned earlier that they sort of like to set their own rules. Well, the biggest difference from institutional investors is that they are a lot less tick box. 
They're under no pressure from shareholders or clients to invest. They're sitting on significant pools of capital. They don't have to invest. You might think you've got the best thing since sliced bread, the best product, the best service, but they don't necessarily want to buy it. They don't need to buy it or they've seen it before. If they miss out an opportunity, so what? A common question is, why me, us, as an investor? And it's also about relationships as before. They don't have huge investment teams. They're going to do their due diligence on investment opportunities. They talk to other families in their own family office universe. And really, just finally, to close here, uh, Dr. Michael, if there's one piece of advice that you would want to leave our listeners with in regards to targeting family offices, uh, what would that piece of advice be? I think our conversation, Omar, has picked up several key themes, which I can summarize, I suppose, as follow, follows. Family offices can be incredibly valuable investors and they provide the long term capital. And that's especially important during economic uncertainty. And we've got a lot of economic uncertainty at the moment. And they open doors that institutions can't. But it can be frustrating to build relationships with family offices, especially if you're used to dealing with institutions who are more active traders, and these chaps and chapesses aren't. It's important to remember that FOs often have very small teams dealing with many investments. It's not only investments they're dealing with, they're considering personal matters, the operation of the family office. Decision timelines and due diligence processes can vary greatly from one family to another. And it might seem like they take an age to make a decision, but they can make a decision very quickly when they want to and they'll act. One of the key things for building relationships is understanding who in the family office you're speaking with. Executives or principals, for example, understanding their process. Do they have an investment committee? How often does it meet? Why are they looking to allocate to this space? How do you, as an institution, fit this thesis? Is their operational experience of value added here? This is the crux, I think, of family office shareholder engagement. It's less commoditized, more nuanced than institutions and can bring significant value because of that. Dr. Michael, thank you for participating in today's uh, discussion. You know, the family offices space is a unique and um, it's a unique space and one that is very interesting to our issuers who are always looking for capital and looking to diversify their shareholder base. And hopefully with today's discussion, we've answered some of the common questions that usually come up around that space. So again, um, thank you for your time and thank you for, for uh, being open to chat with us today. Omar, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.